pray to reflect on this confession of faith. We pray, Lord, you'll help us as we think about it, and we pray that you'll help us to compare what's stated here with what we see in Scripture. And may we come away from this uh, conversation enriched and better able to serve you. In Christ's name, amen. Okie doke. All right, so we're in chapter 28 of the Confession. If you have a hymnal, you'll be able to see what's uh, stated there. I have the printout with the proof texts, but uh, at least in the hymnal, you've got the actual statements. So last time we got about halfway through this chapter, we uh, finished, I think, uh, number three, where we were discussing uh, the subject of how the water is administered. Uh, and now uh, we're at uh, paragraph four. This is where um, this uh, matter of infants and their uh, perspective uh, eligibility is addressed. So number four reads, not only those who do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now, um, obviously our Baptist, uh, Baptist uh, brothers and sisters disagree with us on this subject. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that the overwhelming majority of the Christian church historically uh, practiced this. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, you'll have people sort of winnow away at things and say, well, most of the people in my community, you know, down in Tuscaloosa or whatever, <laughs> don't. But uh, it depends on your sample. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, if we go back to the early church and uh, acknowledge the visible church's practice from earliest times to the Baptist, the, the sort of the arrival of sort of this, this modern approach, and it really is a modern approach uh, of administering baptism only to professing believers, uh, the overwhelming majority of the history of the church has done it this way. So that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. That, now that's not fait accompli, that's not like a, a slam dunk argument or you, know, you can't object to something that's been done for forever, but it, it's not chopped liver either. <laughs> it's not like, well, who cares what people who believed in Christ have done for 2,000 years. Yeah, but, but there's a lot of weight to that because, because the apostles would have made mention if somebody was doing something that was, hey, what are you doing there? You know, you know the household, you know, covenant, covenantal, so forth. Um, and reading a book about this, I was thinking, boy, there's a lot of weight for, for this that's missed historically. Yeah, so the problem is, is when you're, when you're dealing with, say, people who want to limit the administration to uh, you know, believing adults, they'll say, that's an argument from silence. And it's, it, while it's true that an argument from silence doesn't carry the kind of weight that what I'm getting at is an argument from South. So let me, let me explain it this way. So um, if this had been like the sort of default practice of people in antiquity to bring their children into the, whatever religious uh, practice that they had you know, followed, uh, then 
you would have to sort of talk people out of it. And it's the over, <laughs> let me put it this way. Back in, uh, you know, in the Rome, if dad said you die, if the baby is presented to the father in many patrician, you know, the families of the patrician class, and he said the baby was dead. In other words, a father carried that kind of weight, that kind of uh, power and authority in his household. So if his house is, you know, if he's converted, what's the default position? Everybody's <laughs> converted. <laughs> You're all in with dad. It would take an apostle arguing that that was no longer the case to get them to stop. In other words, it would have to, there, there would have to be like a chapter in Galatians or something on why you shouldn't baptize your babies. Now, that's an argument from silence. It's, it's true. It's an argument from silence. But we know enough about the practice of household you know, religious life in the first century. It's true for Jews. You know, now, you know, circumcise the boy. You know, this is how we do things around here. We're a Jewish household. It's not like there's a point in time where, you know, children, you know, asked Abraham into, the, into their hearts or something. It was just like, this is the way we do it. We are covenant people. You know, this is a covenant that's handed down, you know, uh, in the family line. This is the way we do things. This is the way it's, and this would be the practice universally. This isn't just like Romans and Jews. Everywhere you went, this is the way it's done. So this tendency or this conviction that we limit it to, you know, only adults, you know, professing faith for themselves uh, is, in fact, we, we know it's a fairly modern practice. It's a, that's a fairly modern way of thinking. There's really no argument about that. Now, what you've run into with uh, a certain approach to Scripture and its interpretation is um, unless there's something explicitly stated, then it's not uh, called for. In other words, unless it baptize your babies, right? So, but there are all kinds of things that we believe that aren't explicit. We uh, have been able to arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no place in Scripture, there's like no verse in like Romans, and there is the triune God. It's just not the case, but there's plenty of biblical evidence for the triune God. And what you know, the early church fathers were really working at is how do we how do we understand God? So the doctrine of God was the, the big thing, and then the doctrine of, of you know, Christ and the God-man, trying to understand that, trying to formulate uh, a you know, statement that s summarized biblical teaching. But there was no place where uh, you could kind of just go and say, uh, you know, fully man, fully God. We had to like do a lot of work to to come up with that. Yeah. Before we leave the topic, I'm just asking a question in terms of the ramifications of this are potentially the, the destruction of the household. Yeah. 
is related to Baptistic theology from the Anabaptists and then in America. Have you yeah. read anything or historically that would discuss that topic? Well, uh, what, what you have um, is kind of a, a con sort of a, a, a sort of intellectual milieu in which certain things are all happening at the same time. And um, so, for example, if, if, if um, 300 years from now people go and look at our time and, you know, they're reflecting on, say, seeker sensitivity in, you know, megachurch uh, evangelistic practices, they'll say, isn't it remarkable that sort of uh, consumer culture is like in the air? <laughs> and that, that it's, you know, the, the customer is always right and we, you know, market to people. Uh, so, in, you know, I actually have come up, read books about how marketing is evangelism. Now, no one would have ever put it that way until our time. But it's almost like a default position in many people's, you know, you know, sort of outlook. And I think that's the same thing we see, for example, with revivalism. So revivalism really got rolling. Remember when it got rolling? Early 19th century, the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky. So happens that that's the same period of time where the romanticism is on the rise. Romanticism is uh, a philosophical outlook that basically says, you know, the sort of the impulses of the heart are all you need to like rely on. And you shouldn't get too caught up in whether things make sense or are reasonable, <laughs> right? Same, and, and you can look at, you know, even Jonathan Edwards and his, his uh, writing on the subject of uh, religious affections, just coincidentally <laughs> occurs at the same time that David Hume is writing on the same thing, uh, but with a very different agenda. So, you, so this is why it's really important to have and a, and a sort of to be acquainted with the history of Western thought, because you'll see, isn't it amazing that the same thing <laughs> is kind of happening in the church and it's happening in society? So at the at the time when uh, the Baptist sort of outlook is sort of rising in significance and importance and influence, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, in terms of traditions, things that are handed down, that kind of thing, and household practice. Uh, primogenitor is under attack at the same time. Primogenitor, are you familiar with the term primogenitor? Primogenitor means that the firstborn son gets the whole estate or at least a lion's share of the estate. So uh, he, does, he inherits it. Um, and, and we see that all over the ancient world, but uh, it's actually illegal in the United States now. Now, if you want to do it that way, you've got to, you can still do it, but you have to do some sort of legal maneuvering <laughs> to make it happen. But uh, probate courts, you know, like for example, in a probate, there's no will. A probate court, what is, the, what is the default position of the probate court? Equal division among the heirs, right? That wouldn't have been the way it was done. If a probate court was deciding who gets these you know, so what comes of the estate, say, 300 years ago, and say, who's the oldest son? There you go. So you see, we're in a very different sort of frame of reference uh, culturally. Now, today, we hear about primogenitor, and we're like, how? 
astonishingly unfair and stuff like that. But we, we lose sight of is what it was intended to do. Yeah, Jonathan. With that went the responsibility as well, though, I assume, oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or caring for the, the family. Yeah. The, He's the new head of house, which means that his responsibility is to manage the estate. So think about it this way. So you've got, I don't know, let's just say for sake of argument, a uh, thousand acres of land. Three or four generations, you've whittled it down to nothing. Keep dividing it up, dividing it up, divide it up. Next thing you know, you got like poster stamp lots, <laughs> right? So what was the idea? Well, we, we need to keep this thing together for it to keep being productive. Now, people have a share in the estate, right? Uh, so that great line of uh, Jeroboam, you know, when uh, Rehoboam uh, foolishly raises taxes and there's a revolt, there's a tax revolt. The statement of the 10 northern tribes is, we have no share in David. In other words, we have submitted to the rule of David because David's house is administering things in a way that is to the benefit of everyone. Everyone has a, gets their share. Here, we have a situation where Rehoboam is saying, I'm just looking out for the house of David, and it's just you guys are our slaves. This way he's treating them. And they're like, that's not the way it's supposed to work. And so now you could have an oldest son who's an absolute jerk. You know, it's not an unusual thing and it's not hard to imagine, <laughs> right? But you could also have a good one who takes the responsibility seriously for administering the family's concerns in such a way that everybody benefits. So I, have I shared the story about how Man of the House was originally published, or my original contract for Man of the House. My original contract for Man of the House was with Herder and Herder of Germany, the world's oldest family-held publishing company. Seven generations. And so Gwendolyn Herder, uh, I got to talk with her a few times. Uh, she was uh, in charge of the American branch of the family concern. But her brothers ran Spain and Germany. <laughs> so, you know, she got stuck with America. So she lived in New York. But she had inherited, you know, her role. Uh, for, think about seven generations. She could say, that was my great, 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 so six greats or five greats, <laughs> grandfather who started the, the business. And it's still running. So, but how, why was it still running? Because they didn't divide it up. It was still like a family business that they were still concerned about making sure worked. So they, they took their own ambitions, you know, their own priorities and, and, and uh, submitted to the family concern. So that's the, you know, that's the way the Waltons work. It's the way Mars Candies work. You know, there's some, some interesting examples of family-held businesses. M&M's, M&M's, uh, the Mars family, they're like the candy moguls of the world. It's a family business to this day. Yeah, just lots of, <laughs> you can do it, but you have to like say, we're gonna, we're gonna make it happen. So, you know, you think about like the family faith in the same way. This is, we are Christians. So, you know, if you, if you deal with like lots of third world Christians, this is where you see all over the place. Like, I remember when we were doing a family, we were, we were doing interviews, membership interviews with an Indian family. Um, 
This is Robin and Cinderella. Uh, they have an unpronounceable last name. So they, they call themselves the Wesleys so that, that English-speaking people could like have a name for them. <laughs> Wesley family. And uh, arranged marriage, fascinating. I, 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 you know, when I first met Robin, that's the father. Uh, patriarch, old school, man, old school guy. So how did it work? And so he gave me a, a kind of a lowdown on how it worked. It's not, it didn't work like you see on like uh, Fiddler on the Roof. What you had is this network of pastors all over India and they were on, you know, sort of like this, uh, this phone chain. You got five girls who are ready to get married? I got seven boys. <laughs> and they would just like, they would set up, then the families would go on tour to the different churches and meet the different perspectives. And then the, then the girls would be asked, what did you think about those boys? I didn't like them. Okay, well, we'll go on the next church. <laughs> so it wasn't as though these girls had no say in things or the sons have no say in things, but they have a very sophisticated approach. But anyway, I remember when we were doing the family interviews and we asked them, you know, you know when did you become a Christian? They looked at us quizzically. What do you mean? The Wesleys are Christians. <laughs> that, was their, that was their default. This is, this is our family. This is who we are. I'm a member of the family. I haven't been kicked out, have I? <laughs> it was kind of the outlook. But that was like the outlook for everybody, for everywhere, up until the modern era. So in my mind, the apology, the argument needs to be made by the Baptists, not us. This is the historic position. They're the ones that need to prove that it's no longer, or we had it always wrong. That's where the burden lies. So anyway, but it's, it's, faith is present. It's the faith of the, pre, of the parents, right? Uh, and father or mother, preferably both, but either parent, you know, if there's a believing parent, and then the children are baptized. Any, any thoughts or questions about that? So the text that they cite was in Genesis, and then the circumcision text about Abraham had faith while uncircumcised, and then circumcised, then he circumcised his children. So there's the faith of the parent yeah. rationality. And then in, I like to think of the verse 11s in the New Testament. There's uh, Galatians chapter 3, 9 through 14, so 11s in between there. But particularly the two 11s that are are very very hard to defend for a Baptist, I believe, is Romans 4.11 and then Colossians 2.11. They both speak in these kinds of languages in terms of circumcision, Abraham, baptism as related to circumcision. It may not be very explicit, but it's, it's much more explicit than their argument of silence. I, yeah, and you know what? When it comes to this sort of thing, you have to have uh, uh, some some ability to uh, criticize kind of modern approaches to thinking, but you also need to have uh, a sympathetic uh, understanding of what covenant was all about. Um, so covenantal thinking. Uh, is intergenerational thinking. So if you have an explicit argument, you also have on your side, that's a bad, that's a bad argument because it, it denies the hermeneutic of historic Christendom is unless it's abrogated in the New Testament, it remains. Yeah. It is extant and therefore, to some degree, unless it's 
Jesus said, hey, uh, get these kids away from me. Right. Or don't baptize in Romans. Like you said, where's the argument? There's got to be something. There's. I really like the way you put that. There's an argument of silence because they haven't addressed it. Mm -hmm. So it must remain. Somehow. Yeah, I think, I think, and the only way you're going to see the power of that is if you have a really good acquaintance with the way people thought before the modern world. Now, there's some things that come along with the modern approach to thinking, and we, we normally don't uh, associate those problems with this particular debate, but I think they're there. Statism. So statism is, uh, and uh, various approaches to uh, started, you know, starting in the, in the 18th century of thinking about uh, people having a direct relationship with the state without any intermediary sort of role for parents. And this is what we're seeing right now with transgender stuff. The transgender thing uh, is predicated on the idea that the state uh, has direct access to the child and can uh, pursue its agenda with the child uh, contrary to the wishes of the parents. That's what you know, we see on, sort of playing out right now. Yeah, Lisa. Um, I was wondering what you thought. So I remember at university we had to, in one of the philosophy classes, we had to read an article. I don't remember who um, had written it, but essentially his argument was that it was Christianity that kick-started individualism because it went from, I mean, I guess they would put it Paul specifically as a philosopher or whatever, kick-started it, because it went from a nation being a certain religion to, you know, now it's open to the Greeks and the, you know, everyone, the Gentiles, and the logical next progression would be the individual. Um, so I don't know, what, what would you do with that? Oh, I think there's something to that. I, I think that when you're thinking about Obviously, the, the exercise of faith, you know, I believe, you say I believe, there's the I, you know. But it's, I think, taking things too far when you forget the church. So the church is the, the elect, the called out. So we don't belong to, uh, you know, to God in a, in, a, in a sort of individualistic way. We belong in, in, a, in a sense of a people. You know, we the church. So this, this is where we get to all kinds of interesting things. So like when we think about the church as the bride of Christ, uh, sometimes you'll get some really weird individualism introduced to that. It's like some dude saying, I'm the bride of Christ. Like, no, you're not. It's the church, <laughs> right? It's not as though each one of us individually are Christ's bride. It's the church as a whole that is the bride of Christ. And... Um, Consequently, you know, the way we think about ourselves as Christians should be, I belong to this group. So there's still that, but that doesn't mean that there's no uh, emphasis on the individual and the faith. So I've heard it put this way. Um, a heresy is a truth emphasized to the exclusion of all the other truths. So if, if, you, if you just take one thing too far, you end up with that. So uh, yes, individualism. So as the church, we should be able to say, you know, Lisa has certain gifts that are her gifts, but what are those gifts supposed to be used for? The benefit of everybody. 
right? So each one of us have gifts, so there's the individualism, uh, but we're a part of a people, uh, and this local church is the place where you should use your gifts to be a blessing to everybody else. So it's not just, so, you know, when we emphasize the individual too much, you end up with, you know, you know, see, see uh, Austin Miles and In the Garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. You know, but the idea is about me and Jesus in the garden. Uh, or you end up singing songs like, you know, this is an actual song I came across. Uh, I've got Jesus who needs you. <laughs> this is a, some bitter guy who had a bad experience at church. <laughs> yeah, David. Is that the same kind of passage as the hand says we don't need the foot? Uh, yeah, it's, it's all part of it, yeah. So the individualism is, you know, we, we have an identity. Uh, we have a place. We're not just part of some collective where we lose our individuality. You know, you're still David with all of your gifts and, you know, quirks and strengths and weaknesses, and I'm me. And, but we're also part of this larger thing. Um, so it, uh, it's both. It's both and. United we stand, divided we fall. Yeah. So I, I think that so there was a marvelous book that came out in the 80s called Habits of the Heart by a guy named Robert Bella. And he talked about the relationship between individualism uh, and community in America. And he identified four strands. And he said they're the strands of the Republican, the biblical, the, uh, I think it was uh, utilitarian and expressionist. And the way he said that the, the, the two that are positive are the Republican and the biblical and the two that are negative are the utilitarian and the expressionist. Uh, so he said, basically the way they work is this. The Republican understanding is like, you know, uh, I've got a, a business in my community and I wanna contribute to the welfare of my community. That's why I serve on the Lions, you know, I'm a part of the Lions Club or, you know, I'm on the board of the, uh, the library and, and that's, that's where I get my sense of who I am. I, I contribute to my community and that's why you know, it's important for me to be in my community and my role in the community tells me who I am. It gives me a sense of who I am. Biblical is the, the foot, the eye, you know, all of the, the language of the body of Christ. And so Bella said, these two traditions are what made America cohesive. The destructive uh, two are the utilitarian basically is kind of a, well, the reason why the country is, is here is so that I can get ahead. And it's all about me. So uh, it's kind of the, you know, the P.T. Barnum approach to things. It's like, is this the land of, you know, getting rich and then just kind of self-indulgence. The self-expressive is, is kind of the bohemian. Uh, you're all here to applaud whatever I'm into today. You know, it's all about, you know, I, I feel like, I don't know, I'm a tiger. And so that's why I got these tattoos all over my face. And you're all supposed to like tell me, okay, you're a tiger, <laughs> you know. And that's, and those two strands have come to dominate the American scene. And that's why communities are falling apart. It's why everybody's at each other's throats. It's because of those kinds of individualism are uh, the dominant strands right now. 
but a, a really remarkable book. It was uh, uh, Sheilaism. Have you ever heard of Sheilaism? That actually comes from that book. So it was a bunch of sociologists, and Robert Bellow was like the lead sociologist, and they just went out and did a lot of interviews with people. And they, they, had, they came across this, this woman named Sheila, and they asked her about her religious beliefs. And she said, well, I just have my own little religion. I call it Sheilaism. <laughs> okay, Sheila. <laughs> Everybody has their own little religion. Okay, what does that mean? It means we're all isolated in our own little heads, in our own little worlds, you know? and kind of doing our own little thing. So anyway, having fun with Sheila's expense. But <laughs> Getting back to this, baptism. So we're, we're, what, we've, what, we, what we are asserting here is that households uh, are real and that uh, when a child is born into a household, that child is a part of that household. And households can be belong to the church and participate in the church and be part of the church. And so baptism affirms both of those institutions, the household and the church, as legitimate. Uh, now, you can be a bad Christian, right? And you can come under discipline and be uh, you know, excommunicated. So that's one of the things that elders are responsible for on an ongoing basis is not just bringing people in, but adjudicating, judging. You know, if there's a problem, uh, that's a whole other challenge. You know, uh, this all assumes that the work of the elders is being done in a good way. You know, making sure that people are actually living like Christians. Any, any more thoughts on that particular matter before we move on? Yeah, John. Does that, some of that balance um, and tension even between individual and community, um, does that find its answer in Trinity? Well, that, that's where a lot of uh, theologians go. Uh, they'll, they'll say that when we look at the triune God, you know, we see three persons, yet one essence. And in some sense, human communities reflect that. Now, sometimes they'll get a little too enthusiastic for this way of approaching the problem and kind of venture into some speculation that we don't want to... Uh, spend too much time. Eternal fellowship, right. yet distinction. Right. So one of the things that distinguishes the Eastern Church from the Western Church is the emphasis on, when it comes to Trinitarian theology. The, the Eastern Church, meaning Orthodox, you know, the guys with the big beards and the, you know, the very somber expressions, <laughs> they, they emphasize the, the, the social trinity uh, and put a lot of stress on that. The Western Church, both, both Protestant and Catholic, emphasize the uh, essential trinity and put the emphasis on the unity. Yeah, Bill? Uh, I think the common practice in like the first few centuries of the church was to delay baptism. Like, yeah, it was. Up yeah. until like almost the point of death. Yeah. So that there was like the kind of as limited a window as possible between baptism and death. So as not to. Yeah, worse. and it had a lot to do with kind of the sacerdotal understanding that, you know, this was. Uh, you know, regenerating and uh, saving grace that was being administered, and you wouldn't want to like fall back into sin, you know. And then you know, you have the problem of the of the, an apostate dealing with apostasy. So that was the idea that kind of led to that. But that's absolutely right. Yeah. 
It's also interesting uh, there it says, but also infants of one or both believe in parents. So you can't sit here and go, well, you know, he or she's not a believer, so we. Right. Yeah. Can, can you remember where that uh, sort of justification for, say, you know, a child being baptized even though the father's not a believer but the mother is? It's actually, I think it's in Colossians, not in Colossians, in Corinthians, where it talks about uh, the child is holy. Because First Corinthians 7.14. There you go. Another 11, sort of. <laughs> but what you, what you have there is that uh, the child is holy because of the believing mother, and therefore uh, is uh, not unclean. I was thinking Timothy, because his mom was Oh, yeah. Well, that, that would be true, too, yeah. Right, that's right. Yeah, and you have those kinds of things. Like St. Augustine, his father wasn't a believer. His mother was, Monica. Um, by the way, that's a, that's a fabulous story. Like, if you've got a wayward son, you need to, and if you're, you're a mom, you need to read the story of Monica. Monica was like just a not, never quit. It's, it's actually kind of, kind of sad at certain points. Like, when, when uh, Augustine moved to Milan, you know, he left North Africa. He didn't tell his mom he was leaving. <laughs> she found out too late, ran to the dock, and there's the boat pulling out, <laughs> you know, and she's... <laughs> but what did she do? She moved. <laughs> she showed up in Milan and goes to Ambrose, who's the bishop, and, uh, you know, talks about her, her wayward son. And uh, Ambrose had this great line. He said, the tears of, you know, a tear, your tears, you know, speak to God and God can't ignore them. You know, that kind of, <laughs> so, you know, she was uh, persistent, if nothing else. <laughs> and eventually he converts. He become, and next thing you know, he's like, uh, not just converted, but we want you to be bishop. <laughs> I don't want to be bishop, doesn't matter. <laughs> any, any other thoughts on that? Yeah. So on the whole discussion of Cato versus Credo baptism, one topic that I found very persuasive, um, can't say that I've convinced that many Baptists with it, but yeah. um, the duties placed on parents in Deuteronomy 6 yeah. are often assumed to apply in the New Testament context as well. Right. I was around a lot of Baptists that would frequently refer to Deuteronomy 6, but that's a covenant context with covenant expectation and you actually see Paul use Deuteronomy 6 I think as the backdrop for Ephesians 5 when we're told to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord yeah. um, so the big challenge to the Credo Baptist side on that is has the covenant promise and the covenant context been withdrawn that's right if so why are we still told to do that? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. This is one of the things that, you know, we can look at our, our Baptist friends and say, you behave covenantally. Why don't you just go the whole road? <laughs> Take the next step, you know? Because, you know, they're, they're working hard at raising their kids in the faith. You know, they're doing all these things, they're praying for them. They're doing all the things you'd want them to do. Yep. The Baptists dedicate their children right, to the Lord. Is there anything in Scripture that says that we're to do that? No. It's just, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, you can have some fun with this and point out, you know, yeah, it, it kind of, it kind of is a weird practice. They're, they're sort of like 
infant baptism envy, so we're going to get as close as we can to it without you know applying water. You know, <laughs> okay. yeah. I, I, I used to read Schaefer a lot, and he talks about them dedicating. He writes a lot about baptism. Right. He says the Baptists, you know, dedicate, and that's good, but yeah. they don't go far enough. Yeah, yeah. It's basically the thing, is 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 that, you know, I've known. Uh, Baptists who are covenantal in every way except this. In other words, the way they think, the way they practice daily life, and all those kinds of things, the expectations they have for their children, all these things. But there's just this one sticking point for them that they're not willing to, to get beyond. So anyway, you know, uh, you know I, I've got lots of Baptist friends. They, they invite me to speak at their church, you know. They do make me sign a paper that says, I will not bring up baptism. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, Mark. I was thinking in terms of the question Lisa had asked was, <clears throat> Rahab serves as a good example yeah. of being an individual who steps outside of their culture and community to believe in Yahweh yeah. and saves her household yeah. at the same time. So yeah. household is not lost as an individual in that case. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's a good point, and uh, the grace that's extended to her by the Israelites, saying, we, "You know, your house is safe. We won't mess with you." Yeah. Yep, yep. Would you say that this is any way a salvation issue? Meaning that if I don't practice this, that I, I'm not saved? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's, you know, when we when we think about. Um, what does it mean to be saved? You know, we're saved by grace through faith. Um, and there's always a, a temptation for us to uh, interpret that in a way that makes um, something else kind of also included. You know, you know what I'm getting at? So how much did the, the thief on the cross understand, you know, at that point, um, not much, <laughs> right? Other thoughts? Yeah. I was going to bring this up sometime or another, but I guess I'll just do it now. In terms of <clears throat> Mark and I have had some arguments about. No. <laughs> I hate to admit, but I'm seeing the legitimacy of this point. <laughs> <laughs> Humility. I hear that. <laughs> that is in terms of uh, membership. Another non-explicit usage of our New Testament church, and then um, in this church, I guess it's more specific question for this church or Presbytery church. The question is, should should a household of a Christian family be admitted to membership of a church that doesn't believe in paedo baptism? And the historic, I point out to Martin, that the historical position has always been that the Presbyterians would say, no, it should not be a requirement. And then he pushes my button, of course, the covenantal button. Bing, 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 bing. And, you know, harasses me with that one. But I think when I've been talking to some gentlemen lately that really has kind of impressed me 
know, with with the idea that it's hard to dis to administer discipline to a non-member. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it too, and it also you create two sort of classes of member: those who are eligible for office and those who are not. Sure, but I mean I, that's the Presbyterian position. The, the Baptist position is if you believe in paedo baptism, you cannot become a member of the church. I've noticed that they're very strict on that. <laughs> and so I guess I like the way I talked to David about it a little bit. And I like the way David explained it to me. But how do you guys address that? I mean, is that something you guys are addressing now? Or? Well, every family that's come to us for membership has been willing to have their children baptized. So it hasn't become an issue recently. Uh, we had one couple uh, who left uh, since I've been here over the subject or the matter, but it wasn't as though they had any uh, problem with the church. Uh, it was particularly related to baptism of, of children, but we, we weren't not, uh, you know, sort of exercising a lot of pressure on them either, so. So with my question, can you put that on the back burner until we get to the supper? Okay. Because I feel like that it has it goes together. It goes together yeah. in membership. Like, how many kinds of members are there in the Church of Christ? Yeah. Communing member and non-communing member, to me, is a non-biblical idea or impression. That's just me. I'm in the minority there, but I know that. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're probably aware, our church has got strong sympathies, but we're part of a communion that doesn't uh, share those. In the PCA. Is, is, uh, is it required to be baptized to be a member of the church? Is, there, of the church? is it required to be baptized to be a member? Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the first questions we ask. Okay, and so that would include the children's time. Yeah. Yeah, what, what, so, uh, you know, if we discover that the children are baptized, uh, we uh, we actually assume that they should be and do that, unless they're you know adults out of the house. Just a correction on the way you said it was, and <clears> that somebody has to believe in fatal baptism. There's never been a requirement in um, the polity of the church, certainly the PCA. Nor would I argue is there one in scripture that they have to believe it. They simply have to submit to it. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a correction. There he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what, um, you know, we've done here with our session, uh, there's obviously a history here, and I'm coming in pretty late in the game. And so there are precedents and things that have been done uh, by our session, and I'm on board with. I don't I've not come up against anything that I've had any issue with. Um, but anyway, that's where things, how things have been done. Yeah, Peggy. What's the word they're using before baptism? Pedo. What? Pedo. So like means child. Pedo baptism. So, pedo like uh, pedagogy or, you know, like. So P-E, yeah. And then credo would mean creed, in other words, I believe, would be for an adult. So we, we, we do both. So it's not as though, you know, we say to an adult who comes to faith, too late, you know, <laughs> you're not a baby. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, even in our ignorance, like our daughters were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church by a padre in the military, or they were dedicated. He committed. He wasn't a believer, and I have him on video committing to raise his children in the name of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a believer's baptism. It was a your parents will bring you up in the fear and admission of the Lord. Yeah, he actually said it, and he wasn't even just because his family was Roman Catholic that we did that, but I was raised in Protestant, so I'm like, okay, whatever you think. It's like, yeah. but I mean, like, even in our ignorance, we had these babies, our first two babies baptized that way. Yeah, well, good. You know, it's, it's always better to have knowledge of what you're, you're doing, but if you're doing things that are good, you know, uh, you know, it's like, there are lots of things that we do that we don't fully understand why we do them, but they're good things to do. Other thoughts? Yeah. Just in terms of <clears throat> going back to when you started this discussion, um, we talked about that um, circumcision was the covenant sign of covenant inclusion under the Old Testament, baptism in the New and Passover was the sign of covenant communion, the meal of covenant communion, and the Lord's Supper anew. Under, under this argument of silence, the Old Testament is very clear that if, if a household did not um, include all members of their household in the sign of covenant inclusion, circumcision, they could not participate in the sign of covenant communion, the meal, and just not going on with all the ramifications of that, but clearly one of the ramifications is it belonged, those signs, those sacraments of the Old Testament belonged to the Old Testament church. The Old Testament church, even though the sacrament of, of the um, Passover was held in the home of an individual, the Old Testament church did not allow it to occur. They were commanded that they would be cut off, meaning, I believe, cut off from fellowship, being a part of the people of God. Whether that meant they were sent out or not, I, I, I'm not making an opinion, but they did not have that sign. And in the same way, getting to some of Victor's questions, if you let a parent decide whether or not their child is going to be baptized, you've given the sacraments to the family, not to the church, which is inconsistent with both our BCO as well as the practice of the Old Testament church. And then the argument of silence piles on there. Yeah, so our, you know, covenant theology uh, acknowledges a continuity uh, carrying forward because Christ fulfills um, and now we know more and are able to uh, benefit f more from New Testament practice in terms of, you know, inclusion in the covenant and the, so and the, and the sign. So just to understand the individual nature of this is Baptistic theology is basically teaching that the sacraments of, given to the church of God belong to the individual. Yeah. Right. Well, that's why so often when you when you are discussing the matter, the the reference is to my faith. So, like when I'm 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 baptized, and the the baptism is pointing at my fact the, the fact that I believe, rather than the work that was done. 
right? Well, that's... Uh, Sorry. No, <laughs> this is good. This is, we won't get to uh, the next chapter today. <laughs> um, this next uh, uh, statement, number five, although it be a great sin to contend or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that, the, uh, that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So this deals with you know, the many uh, statements made last week about what about this and what about that? You know, if you're on a desert island and you believe in Christ and you can't be baptized, does that mean you're lost? You know, these kinds of things. There are uh, extenuating circumstances uh, that um, this particular paragraph is, is intended to address. Uh, consequently, we're not saying that we believe that uh, baptism itself regenerates. Baptismal regeneration is the doctrine that it's the actual administration of the sacrament that produces the regeneration. We're not saying that. Um, and that last clause is intended to, to state, uh, sort of re-emphasize re that. And, uh, and it states, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. It's possible that a person uh, has been baptized but is not a genuine believer, doesn't have the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit to have, that has made a person a new creature. That's, it's possible that it can happen. It can even happen in Baptist churches <laughs> where you know, that whole way of thinking is intended to prevent that from happening, but it even happens there. Any thoughts about any of that? And the danger, of course, is when you say that, you can say, well, then there's nothing to it. Yep, Jonathan. It's funny because we, we're, we're perfectly comfortable with plenty of other signs and seals and, and finding that, that balance, you know, like, like a, this wedding ring, what does it mean? Yeah. It means I'm married, right? right. If, if I take it off, have, it, have I stopped being married? No. Right. If I stopped wearing this wedding ring consistently, mm -hmm. would that raise a question? Well, well yeah, you know, like, yeah. like why, why, why don't you? Why, why, why aren't you? Right. You know, do you have a problem? With, yeah, that would be concerning if I was like, if I, if, if I said that this had no meaning at all, right? right? But is my marriage connected to it? Do, do, I, do I not become married if I lose it? Yeah, not, you know. <laughs> yeah, those, those are all good points, yeah. Same with same facts. Yeah, yeah. Same with yeah. I worked for a Baptist church over in Hazeldale for two and a half years. Oh, <laughs> I know. Uh, and the minister hated me. He oh, said, sorry about that. You're, you're not doing any good. And the woman who was conducting the choir said, yes, she is. She's helping me out. Good. And if, if you make her leave, I'm going to leave too. Wow. And the whole choir said, yes, we want Molly here. Well, we like you too. So all we heard Molly say, pointing to you, is you're not doing any good. <laughs> I don't know what she said. Well, I was uh, 
because um, I have, you know, we all have good Baptist friends. We love, you know, we love the Lord, you know. But the way they look at credo baptism, it's an outward sign of an inward change. So really, their look of baptism, if you were to parse it out, is it's not it's not a salvation issue because the person's already yeah. professed and confessed. Right. You know, so it's kind of the inversion of what you were just saying. I mean, there's people who, you know, we've seen it. You know, they they come, they walk the aisle, they make the profession, they get baptized, and they're twice the worst yeah. person. <laughs> Right. Well, this kind of gets us back to the, the issue of uh, what is this referring to and where does the church come in? Um, so this is uh, a, a, a way of thinking about baptism that seems to uh, stress the, uh, the faith of the individual believer to the point where almost the, the, the role of the sacrament in uh, being a means of being and you know, introduced to the covenant community is lost. The community is so uh, attenuated, so muted, that it kind of encourages this sort of me and Jesus who needs you kind of thing, if you get my, my drift. I think the um, easy way to understand five is um, the parallel between circumcision and baptism and that um, Romans 4 teaches clearly that Abraham was given yeah. that sign and seal as a righteousness that he received by faith alone. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean, and we, none of us understand all of those young men who were circumcised throughout the Old Testament to be those who, that created circumcisional regeneration. Right. Or, it yeah, was such a thing, but that God instructed them yeah. as to what it meant their whole life and how it was they were, for example, supposed to circumcise their hearts yeah. and how that was used to instruct them to understand it the same way right. for for each of us and our children. Yeah, this is the kind of the perennial challenge of trying to hold together the body and the spirit because what we, what we have uh, when we talk about the visible uh, world, the world that God has made that we can see, um, it uh, is a gift, it's God's creation, and uh, the uh, redemption that we have in Christ affects it, the physical world. In fact, our own bodies, we as believers maintain, will be raised, right? Uh, that salvation isn't just simply uh, the resurrection of, say, uh, a ghostly spiritual thing, but uh, we look forward to the redemption of our bodies. This is explicitly stated in Scripture. But um, there are people uh, that we know, but we don't have direct access to the sort of inner life of that person. We can't really know what's going on uh, in that person's head. Likewise, with the church, uh, it's a, there's, a vis there's a visible reality, the church, the physical institution that we can see gathering and worshiping. But we don't know uh, without a whole lot of uh, confidence um, just how pure the church is at any particular place. Um, now, you know, we can be a part of a church and discover over a period of time that there's evidence of hypocrisy and stuff like that. I mean, it's not as though we can't know uh, the 
sins of our brothers and sisters that have some kind of evidence that we can point to and observe. But this is the challenge. So if we place so much stress on sort of the inward state of the person that we lose sight of the body and the church, um, I think we've betrayed some very important features to what baptism is intended to talk to us about or sort of point to. Uh, the visible church is something that God cares about and it's real and it's important, it's significant. It will be purified. There will be a day where there'll be some sorting out, but in the meantime, we do the best we can, I return to that, <laughs> we do the best we can to uh, you know, administer the sacraments and judge the church as elders. Uh, we don't have perfect uh, insight. That's something that only God possesses. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, when we fail to uh, you know, live in this manner, you know, so we're talking about the circumcision of the heart. Okay, there is circumcision, but, and then there's the circumcision of the heart. Does that, because there's circumcision of the heart, does that mean physical circumcision is now meaningless, worthless, can be just abandoned? Um, likewise, uh, we should be genuinely uh, cleansed from sin because of the work of Christ, and that's made possible for us because of the exercise of faith. You know, we believe that we've been saved by Christ and that his sacrifice is sufficient for our salvation. Um, so that's, that's true, uh, but does that mean that if there are any faithless people in the church, the whole thing is worthless? You know, it can be just kind of discarded and, and cast aside. So, you know, we're, we're working, uh, you know, in a world that um, is full of sin and, and we're still ourselves, you know, fighting against sin in our, in our lives, struggling to overcome those things in our lives that by God's grace we're, we're warring with. So it's, as you, I guess what I'm trying to convey is that um, even though it would be wonderful uh, to be able to say without exception that every person that's been baptized is saved, we can't, you know, because, um, you know, we live in a world where people are living very inconsistently. <laughs> yeah? Um, can you, I think you did it, but can you address the First Peter 3.21 corresponding to that from Ark, that baptism now saves you? First Peter three twenty one. Yeah, let me get to it. I want to have it in front of me. Starts off at about twenty. Yep. So let me begin reading at verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the reference is to Christ. So Christ, who has been raised, uh, is the uh, source of the good conscience uh, and is our savior. And the baptism uh, that's being referred to is the baptism that is in fact the inner baptism or the inward baptism that corresponds to the, you know, the inward circumcision and the outward and so forth. But what you have here, of course, is an illustration uh, that uh, relates to a household, you know, Noah's household, uh, and they pass through water. And so the imagery of passing through water, we hear it uh, referred to with regard to passing through the Red Sea and, and, and so forth. So there's, a, there's often a very, I think, uh, literary sort of freedom that you see with the apostles as they're connecting events related to water and to baptism. You know, they refer to passing through the Red Sea, they talk about, you know, Noah here. But uh, this, the, the point is, is that the one who saves is Christ. And that's the, that's the one who gives us the clear conscience because of our faith uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a really rich matter, and I wish I could talk about it more, but we should make the transition. <laughs> anyway, uh, rich stuff, and uh, I've not done it justice, but why don't we pray and uh, spend a little time in fellowship. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your help in this matter. This is, of course, uh, a subject that we could reflect on for a lot longer, and we haven't done it justice uh, and we know that we're dealing with some ambiguities in one sense because there's disagreement among uh, true Christians about how to understand these matters. But we pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we endeavor to uh, see what our, uh, understand what our confession maintains and help us to, uh, to, to uh, remember that the men who were uh, laboring to uh, provide us with this confession, we're prayerful and we're trying to please you and we're trying to help us. And we say these things in Christ's name. Amen.